and original artwork. Sounds Good Music House buys used records, too. Open weekends and any time the doors open. More information at 845-676-6233. 845-676-6233. Or soundsgoodcatskills.com. Sweet Pea Supply Company in the hamlet of Halkettsville for fresh-made baked goods, prepared dishes, and Jane's ice cream. A general store with an international selection of chocolates, condiments, and gifts. Open Thursday through Monday, 11 to 7. Sweet Pea Supply Company, Bragg Hollow Road, Halkettsville. 607-326-6776. 607-326-6776. Weekly specials posted at Sweet Pea Supply Co. Com. The Catskill Mountain Foundation, celebrating 25 years of bringing arts to the mountaintop. With over 90 performances, 35 classes, and countless community events this year, from Grammy Award-winning musical performances to dance and art classes for all ages, including Hope Pointland Dance performing A State of Love and the Olivier Tarpega Dance Project performing Once the Dust Settles, Flowers Bloom. Event information at CatskillMTN.org. WIOX Roxbury is supported by you. And a really easy way to support WIOX is to donate your car or truck, one that you don't need anymore. You know, the one sitting out in the backfield or off the side of your driveway. We'll get the old clunker out of the way at no cost to you. But it could be worth hundreds of dollars to support WIOX. Learn more about WIOX vehicle donations at WIOXradio.org. Thank you. Listening to 
WIOX Community Radio Live and Local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. This is From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? It's all good, Ryan. How are you? All right, what have you been up to? Uh, I went for a walk in the woods today at lunchtime and stumbled across a sow with two cubs. Um, Sweet. Just minutes before, I found a cherry tree that looked like something had fallen out of it. The branches were all broken up. Pretty high up, too. Yeah. Must have been them. Yeah, you know that one cornfield in Arkville? Yeah. Yeah, the bears are giving it hell. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Well, yeah, maybe the same ones. I it's wasn't. all mowed down, and there's prints everywhere. So, definitely black bear. Yeah. You know, now you know why farmers... Uh, Get a little disgruntled by um, Blackberry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But we got a full show tonight. We have a guest, um, and tonight's topic is Keeping the Pine Lands with New Jersey Forester Bob Williams. Bob Williams is the owner and founder of Pine Creek Forestry. He has an associate's degree in forestry in 1972 from Centralia College and a bachelor's from Rutgers, 1975. 43 years experience, probably more now, in the field of forestry. His experience includes working for Washington State Department of Natural Resources, the U.S. Forest Service in Alaska and Washington, and Scott Paper Company as a logging engineer. Since 1985, Bob has worked as a consulting forester in New Jersey, working with both private and public landowners to achieve management and stewardship goals for natural resources. And let me see if I can get Bob Williams on the show. Bob, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? We're okay. How's uh how's it down there in New Jersey? It's extremely hot. <laughs> yeah, I bet it's hot as hell up here, so it's got to be extremely hot. Yeah. What what have you been up to? Well, in day-to-day um forestry uh program we have of writing forest plans and addressing rules and regulations and trying to discover if we could find any forest operators that can go in the woods and work and all that pretty much takes all your time yeah i I bet i bet the struggle is real um so recently i saw a pbs uh special on keeping the pinelands and i guess before we get into that um can you can you tell us what the pinelands are to us up here in new york state who are unfamiliar with it well, the Pine Lands, uh, Pine Lands National Reserve is a one million acre plus area of southern New Jersey that back in the 60s, um, conservationists began to uh, rally around to, to keep this uh, forest uh, because it was certainly being uh, paved over at a very rapid pace. We have the coastal uh, shore communities where people recreate, and then, you know, the Pine Lands is right next to that, and certainly uh, with New York City and Philadelphia, it was a prime development zone. Um, People were successful in getting uh, the federal government to declare the National Reserve and then getting the state of New Jersey to uh, write legislation that would protect this area and uh, the law was passed I believe in 1979 
And interesting enough, the, the, the commission and, and regulatory staff that, that uh, enforces regulations regulate everything, private land, public land, uh, the entire uh, 1.1 million acres is under regulation. Now, it should be known also that the actual Pinelands Forest goes beyond the jurisdictional uh, limits of the of the uh, Pinelands National Reserve, and we view all the forest as the Pinelands. Certainly different regulations within the reserve and, and out. And the unique, couple unique issues here. One was the... Um, the impact on private property rights was extremely significant. And I think we have to appreciate what that initial generation of people gave up um, by allowing, you know, this uh, to take place where you, you can't build houses and you can't do this and that. So you could have an example where there's a, there's a road and on one side of the road, an acre of land is worth $75,000, and on the other side of the road, the land is worth $750, uh, because you can't, you can't, you know, you can't do anything on that land. And I think that's underappreciated what those people sacrificed. Um, it's unique in the United States. I'm not aware of other areas where uh, state and federal government have come in and, and Maybe the Adirondacks up your way is, is a similar situation. But uh, nonetheless, I think it was the right thing to do because it, it is an amazing uh, and unique uh, forest uh, with much, much uh, biodiversity and uh, general uh, diversity of forest types. And along with that, it was intended that the local... Uh, culture be perpetuated. The people that made their living in the woods uh, or utilized uh, products from the woods, whether that be uh, a beaver or a tree for a log, whatever. Um, so the Pinelands had a very unique rural culture, unlike any place else, I think, in, in the United States. Um, and so this area was retained and still there and still regulated and uh, there's a lot of forest and uh, this show was intended to, to help people in other areas first off understand what's here and, and how this all came about but maybe also give them ideas in their regions of you know you, know, you may be considering uh, regulation or what have you or land planning let's say landscape level land planning and there's some important things to consider beyond the fact that you're saving trees uh, the impact on local people uh, typically is ignored i think our rural communities in the united states are really really um, have been degraded so to speak in terms of their viability Yet those are the people and uh, that supply so much of what made the United States great. So that's sort of an overview. Yeah, I, um, and the reason why, I, you know, there's many reasons why I wanted to have it on the show, but there's very there's a lot of similarities to other areas. You could you could have this show and substitute the Catskills or the Adirondacks, um, 
with the pine lands. You know, we have the Forest Preserve, but we also have the DEP, which is the city of New York that regulates um, private land through the water in many ways. And the Adirondacks would be the Adirondack Park Agency, which regulates private land. And if you're in the ocean, where I go to see my in-laws in Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, they regulate the fishing industry quite a bit to, I would say, the detriment of the local culture there. And it's all in the name of preserving the resource, but there is a cost, right? I mean, there is a cost to it on the culture, I think. And sometimes it has unintended consequences. It really does, I think. Well, that's true. Uh, it's a huge cost because um, in, in, in our case, um, eliminating the people that worked in the woods is bad enough, but we've also had a relatively negative impact on on, on the forest ecosystems themselves and the biodiversity that, that depends on that in terms of endangered species, uh, uh, people that hunt there, fish, uh, recreate. Uh, and of course, we have a pretty massive uh, wildfire issue here that we saw quite a bit of it this year, but we're, we've yet to see what's really going to happen here when we have the right conditions. So it's essential that society and certainly these environmental regu regulatory agencies begin to understand that it isn't just about saving a, a, a critter, a species, a plant. It's a complex thing about trying to keep everything going. And the forest, uh, you know, which provided essential wood products for the citizens of New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Philadelphia for hundreds of years could still do that. The forest is still there. Our forest is in the fifth and sixth growth. That's how many times it's been cut over. Now, there's been very little cutting in the last 40 years since, you know, the Pine Lands Commission took over. And that's a complex thing um, that has some to do with economics. Regulations played a huge role in uh, generally people getting discouraged and saying, well, we can't do this anymore. We started out with 37 sawmills. We have one today. So that tells you it is an oil regulation. There's some economic issues that certainly have suppressed the use of trees. How do but, people perceive, like, the pine lands in New Jersey? Like, like what, what do you I th think I, that is? I think the people perceive the pine lands as this big forest that's out there, and it's critical that we save it. Uh, it is important in terms of an aquifer. Uh, it's, it's important in many ways. So I think generally uh, the public is very supportive. They don't know much about it. If they went there, they'd be shocked and amazed that, they live that close to such a wonderful place. But the public in general, I think, is extremely, uh, they just don't, um, I don't think they have the information to understand, well, if we're going to keep it, we've got to take care of it. Yeah. You know. That's the tough part. <laughs> that's really difficult. And uh, it's unfortunate that our society has uh, gone down that path that, somehow the perception that you're cutting trees, it's automatically bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's been my experience anyway. So the Pine Lands uh, 
one of the most unique things is how close it is to you know tens of millions of people yet it's still there and it you know to defend regulation it would not be there if we weren't trying to but that balance in my opinion was never struck between uh, sort of the traditional heritage of, of using the land and and keeping it uh, in trees was, has never been struck yet. What what part of New Jersey is it in again? It generally runs from, say, Atlantic City up to the middle part of the state over to about 30 miles from Philadelphia. It's a big part of our state, no question. Wow. Huh. John, what do you think? Uh, well, the Pinelands ecosystem is a, you know, a one that you know requires fire, right? Uh, or, or has historically seen a lot of fire and return disturbance. Um, was you know harvesting and 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 the cutting that was going on uh, beneficial to that, or at least played a co, you know, a, a good part in, in restoring some of that? Yes. By the time we got to the 1960s, what was this unique, wonderful um ecosystem that needed to be saved was a direct result of very heavy use for hundreds of years and uh, arbitrarily uh, being burned over that resulted in this uh, matrix of all kinds of unique habitats and plant communities and, and wildlife once we stop that of course the trees keep growing and they keep filling in so you don't have that disturbance uh, in terms of, of setting succession back. We do have an occasional fire that will do something, but, but not as it was before. So certainly uh, a judicious use of cutting trees along with reintroduction of fire is the way to go. If you want to perpetuate certain habitats for plants, uh, you need to do something. And uh, we have many plant communities that are going extirpated. Um, we've lost our bob white quail. We lost our rough grouse. They're all gone. Um, and it, in my opinion, it, it's directly related to this, you know, hands-off preservation, densification of the forest. It's a, it, it, in many areas, the forest is so thick, it's, it's too dangerous to even try and do a prescribed fire. Mm. Uh, so it has to be an a integrated approach of uh, removing, removing trees for the right reasons, and those trees uh, need to, you're either going to pay someone to take them away or, or let them be paying for themselves by producing a wood product or something like that. So. We have a real problem here in that it's a big landscape with tens of thousands of houses tucked in it, and it's ready to go. Um, we saw that in Maui, and people will say, well, he's crazy. It can't happen here. Well, yes, it can happen here because it takes the perfect storm. You have to have, you know, significant winds and an ignition on the right day in the right place, and, and this is what happens. And it's sort of irresponsible that we, we are not, we're not doing much of anything on the, on the level that would be required to really address this. There are things being done, but they're pretty modest. Uh, the other thing is, is we have to stop demonizing 
uh, people that utilize trees for products. I mean, we need them. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's okay that, for instance, there's a big um, uh, wood manufacturing uh, outfit here in the Pinelands that builds, uh, constructs, um, I guess you'd call prefabricated homes and such. And literally every week, tractor trailer loads of lumber come in from uh, hey, you're breaking up for a second there. Hey, Bob. Yeah. We're losing you for a second. Is there a connection or something? Something going on? No. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, try, try, are you on a cell phone or are you on a landline? Oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I can hear you, but it's kind of muffled. You want me to call back? Yeah, call back. We'll take a break. And uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. And tonight's topic is Keeping the Pinelands with New Jersey forester Bob Williams. Big John. Big John. Every morning at the mine, you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245, kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Nobody seemed to know where John called home. He just drifted into town and stayed all alone. Didn't say much, kind of quiet and shy. But if he spoke at all, he just said hi to Big John. Somebody said he came from New Orleans where he got in a fight or a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land. Big John. Big John. Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when the timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast. Everybody thought that they'd breathe the last except John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell Walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well Grabbed a sagging timber, gave out with a groan And like a giant old tree just stood there alone Big John Big John Big John Big Bad John Big John with all his strength, he gave a mighty shove. Then a miner yelled out, there's a light up above. And 20 men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's only one left down there to save Big John. With jacks and timbers, they started back down. Then came that rumble way down on the ground. And the smoke and gas belched out of that mine. Everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Big John. Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Now they never reopened that worthless pit. They just placed a marble stand in front of it. These few words written on that stand. 
at the bottom of this mine lies a big, big man, Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. All right. That's Big John. If you're just tuning in, this is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. And tonight's topic is keeping the Pinelands with New Jersey forester Bob Williams. See if we can uh, get him back on. Bob, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can yeah. you hear me? Oh, yeah. I can hear you good now. Who the hell, who the hell knows what happened? <laughs> but um, so what, I guess let's back up before the 70s, before New Jersey uh, protected or whatever a million-plus acres of this uh, reserve. How would you describe the culture and and the I guess the um, the forest there? What made it so special? Well, a couple things. There was a very vibrant um, woodcutting culture and sawmilling. Uh, one of the main uh, products uh, and tree was the Atlantic white cedar, which is a very high quality tree. But the interesting thing is that. That tree and its wood is directly linked to the coast, uh, coastal uh, culture of people building their boats, uh, making shingles for the, all the uh, homes, the historical homes, and uh, docks and piers and decoys. And, you know, there's a real a culture of the coast that was linked to that wood. And... It's a big area, so sort of different families would have a sawmill, and you'd have these sort of like little regions where they would get all their wood, and then the family would be over another county. It was nothing um, like nationally or anything like that, but nonetheless, it was a very vibrant um, activity. We had a pulp mill across in Philadelphia. They would take pine. And so they're all kind of pulp woodcutters cutting the pine off. And we had a, a, a fairly robust firewood um, industry. People were buying a lot of firewood from the pine land. So the trees were getting cut. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, forest management. They were just cutting trees. That's what they did. So the forest responded to that sometimes good, sometimes bad, but nonetheless there was always a forest. And it was quite vigorous. I, you know, I could get the numbers, but there's a lot of production going on. Uh, the pine lands, and actually all of New Jersey was in the 1700s uh, was developed around sawmills. I think at one point there were over 900 sawmills in New Jersey, you know, and the community would build up around that. That held over in South Jersey well into the uh, 1970s. You know, it still existed. Um, So, fortunately, the response um, to the land was pretty positive, except for the cedar. Cedar does require some follow-up management, so the uh, the woodcutting did um, participate in, in the decline of Atlantic white cedar forest, there's no doubt. Um, on on the other side of that, we're in uh, an era now where we have the science and we know how to do it. We certainly could be 
bringing that forest back and regenerating it and increasing the acres as, as opposed to the loss of cedar, which is certainly mentioned in the film. And there's, there's significant efforts being talked about to, to initiate that, um, that work. So uh, forestry, I would call it more of a woodcutting culture than forestry because they're really, in my not to my knowledge, was there a lot of planning or consideration? It was like you cut firewood, go over there. There's an oak forest. You know, you cut cedar. Here's this. You know, and of course, many times the forest came back just fine, and sometimes it didn't. But that was then. We're here now, and we have the science, and and there's an incentive to do it to where we're ensured that that culture could continue. That people could still build. You know, you look at all the historical buildings, give an example, the years back, they were uh, putting shingles on one of our state park buildings, a small uh, community they preserved out in the Pinelands, and they were they were shipping in a western red cedar to shingle the roofs. Now, to me, that's so offensive, I don't even know what to say. You know, that these buildings are sitting in the middle of a cedar forest, but they wouldn't cut them because of a lot of reasons, uh, you know. So you're destroying, you know, that that cultural artifact of that of that building actually by doing that. So my opinion is, Pineland is set up to cut trees based upon the ecological values and the cultural values. Uh, it's the perfect place to demonstrate there is a better way than clearing all the land and planting trees in rows and having plantation forestry. That's appropriate where it is. It's not here. Um, it's not needed. Uh, but, um, you know, getting people to understand that or accept that putting a, a, a big mechanized machine on the land and cutting trees is okay is just difficult. It's just really difficult. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, if you watch that, that small production, which I think is um, a lady who, who produced that, Susan Walner, did just a fabulous job of showing, you know, how important the people are and were if you want to keep the pine lands. What, what was the goal of of the Pinelands, though, like when they created it in 1979? Like, did they have, like, was it biodiversity or just protecting from development, period? Or what was the goals? I think the goal was to protect the ecological integrity of that land while allowing some sustainable human use and growth. I think that was the goal. Um, the goal was, you know, I, in large part, I, I think they've done a pretty good job of that, other than I don't think the preserved land where there's never going to be development is is, is uh, provided the conservation and stewardship that it needs. But it's there. It's there to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't even be there. Yeah. Is it is it that attractive to, to houses and stuff? Um, like, what, what is the environment like there? Is, is it sandy or what's it like? Well, it's very sandy, but the attraction is its location. You know, when you're so close to the recreational industry of the Atlantic Coast and 
Philadelphia, New York, to build retirement homes and, you know, these, which they were doing, and there's plenty of those to go see what would have happened. That was the attraction. Um, it's not like, well, we're going to build houses in this beautiful valley where there's mountains and, you know, it's not like that. Uh, and some of the uh, housing developments that are in forest certainly have those. Uh, there's a lot of beauty, you know, aesthetic value that attracted people. But the main thing is the space. It's look at what's here. One of the motivations to uh, uh, preserve it was that the state of New Jersey was considering building a city. And they were going to build a city around a jet port. Uh, and it was quite serious. I mean, the governor and people had gotten involved, and that would have destroyed, well, you know, I don't know, 400,000 acres. I mean, they, but that's what they wanted to do in the 19, early 1960s. It was a serious, I remember the, the signs on the highways, and that was the thing that got the uh, environmentalists and conservationists to say, we we got to stop this. And I happen to agree with that, you know. We're looking at land, but we have to be looking down the road for hundreds of years. What's going to be there for people? So, you know, this idea of preserving open space is very valid. Where I think uh, the culture of the United States has gone wrong is... That means preserve it and never touch it. And that's creating some real problems. That really is, you know, these lands need to be taken care of. You can have a discussion about how intensely we need to, to take care of them, but at least, you know, leaving them burn up in, in uncontrolled wildfires and leaving whole, uh, you know, species be extirpated in the name of you know, the bigger picture of preservation, to me, is just unacceptable. When the forest offers us an opportunity to have it all, you know, locally grown with products, um, biodiversity, increasing endangered species populations, um, restoring endangered species, restoring forest ecosystems, you know, why don't we want that? Why is it so hard? You know, uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. Hmm. How, how, um, how does fire fit into this? Is there any kind of prescribed fires going on? Uh, yes. from New Jersey? Yeah. There's quite a bit. We, the good news is we, we have a, a, fi a burning culture. You know, you can burn and people understand what's going on and it's sort of accepted. There's certainly some people that don't want to deal with the smoke and what have you, and smoke is a problem. But the fire problem is complex. This forest needs more fire. We need to do more burning. Um, uh, you know, burning perpetuates the uh, everything, the plants, the animals. The, our, our forest is really uh, set to burn. It, it, wants to burn. Our, our two pine species of shortleaf pine and, and pitch pine, both are fire dependent. But yet we have areas they haven't burned for 
60 years or more, 75 years. And so, you know, the question is, how do you burn? Again, it's, it's all about science and planting. Some forest uh, in the pine lands, not in the growing season, but if you burn them down in the, in the winter, they just green right out again. So it's amazing, you know. Uh, they aggressively regenerate after fire. But then we have this whole new issue of smoke and carbon emissions. You know, where forest management can minimize a lot of that. Um, again, you know, the, every one of these issues gets back to trying to strike a balance and do what's best for everyone. And we just don't, in my opinion, we just don't. And we don't because I think our society is still uh, ignorant of, of what forest management is. What's your biggest hindrance there? I mean, um, is it... How does the New Jersey DEP fit into that? Um, is it just a lot of red tape? Like, like what's the what's the major hurdle? I think that uh, there's a couple things now. Uh, certainly, regulations uh, don't necessarily obstruct forestry. We've we've gotten to a point where you can get a permit. Um, probably the biggest obstruction is there's no use for the wood. You, you, you can't go out to a, a, a hundred acre track of pine that needs to be thin uh, commercially and if you don't have a place to take and sell the wood, do it. You know, I mean, and the cost of paying land clearers to do that is cost prohibitive. So the loss of markets now has really uh, restricted uh, the ability of foresters and landowners to manage their, their resource. Um, I think you can overcome the uh, regulations. They're onerous for sure. They go way beyond what they need to be, but that's fair enough if, you know, we need to dot more I's and cross more T's, I'll do that. But why go through that process when no one's gonna come around, even if you give them the wood? You know, it's like, oh, we have no use for that, so we're not going to do it. So the ne neglect, the benign neglect of our land really um, is a result of, of that. I don't think the state government has a lot of um, interest in managing our, our public lands. There's always a lot of talk about it, but I don't, you know, don't see anything meaningful on any scale. Uh, but I suspect if they could get work done without spending money, you know, some of that could change. You know, even if we could barter to get trees out of the woods that we want for the results that we want, and then eventually, um, once that wood product is being produced, I think, like anything, a market would develop where someone would say, "Well, well, I'm not sure it's going to take them. I'll pay you if you give me your wood. Okay, pay us." So it's got to. We got to start all over. Mm, very similar problem that we have here is the uh, lack of markets. You yeah, know. but we need wood. Everybody needs wood. Yeah. But if, but if New Jersey's going to import, you know, I was telling uh, a group, um, they asked me what I thought of cutting logs in New Jersey and taking them to a sawmill. And their, the intent of their question was to say, well, that's bad, you know. And I said, well, okay. 
the citizens of New Jersey, I forget what's here, 11 million people or something, every day, every one of them uses wood. So every year, the citizens of the state of New Jersey require probably a conservative number is about 150,000 acres of trees be clear cut somewhere on the planet Earth. And they kind of look at you like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, where do you think this wood comes from? It comes from Germany. It comes from Ecuador. It comes from Indonesia. It comes from Russia, Estonia, name, name the country, you know, Canada for sure. Um, so you're telling me that it's okay to do that, but let's not cut our trees here around in South Jersey. You know, we we're going to protect them. And the hypocrisy of that is, is, I don't think you could even explain that. It's like, well, forget about the carbon emissions to get the wood here. We don't even talk. So that's what you have. You have a society that, uh, I don't know what the term is, just doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand. Or, I would say it's ignorant at that point. Uh, you're yeah. ignoring, literally ignoring some, some truths out there. I mean, well, what else? I don't know. What, to, what do you think, John? I mean, it reminds me a lot of the book. Um, Bob, you ever read the book, uh, The Age of Wood? I think um, the I'm author, aware of it. The author states uh, one of the hardest hitting lines in that book to me was uh, every human on planet Earth is no further than six feet away from a wood product at some point. Yeah. And I got a pencil in my hand. We're sitting at a wooden desk here. I got my yeah. foot on a wooden chair. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, you can't get away from it. Well, wood, you know, trees are the answer. You know, like I. I'll, I'll say that forever. It's like, you know, we should cut more and plant more and regenerate more. And uh, it's the, the best thing ever put on the planet. I mean, when you, uh, and our pine land certainly has produced so many wood products. Uh, it's just ridiculous, you know, but that land would do it again and probably do better. We certainly are producing some lands that are, much more productive than the 200 years of arbitrary abuse, you know. Uh, it's not a, it, it's called the Pine Barrens, but there's nothing barren about it. It'll grow beautiful trees, if, if that's what you want. It'll grow a Pine Barren if you want to burn it down every two years, you know. So, you know, again, it's what's the balance here? What should we be doing? And I think that was the purpose of the film to have a uh, rather rational presentation of all these different things and say, you know, you should think about these things. It's not going to change tomorrow, but think about it and uh, talk to your legislatures and talk to people and, you know, I, I don't know what else to say, you know. Hmm. Um, so... If you're, oh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest, tonight's topic is Keeping the Pinelands with New Jersey Forester Bob Williams. You know, with 40 or more years or 50 years of fire suppression, what does the New Jersey Pine Barrens grow into? What does that look like? Well, what it grows into is very dense uh, forest um, from the ground to the crown. You know, the, the, the scrub oak understory will grow you know, 15 feet tall, uh, the huckleberry kind of, you know, everything just keeps getting denser and denser. 
um, the pine is probably, in terms of stocking, more dense than it would be if it had had fires along the way. Some of those fires would have thinned out some trees and what have you. Then you have a mid-story of post oak and sassafras and uh, a lot of hardwood trees that would have been taken out along the last 80 years if fire had come through there. So if a fire gets going with the right uh, humidity and wind, it is extremely fast um, because you just have this amazing fuel load and it's preheating everything in front of it. And so the, the, the forest just, now the, the, the great thing, the lucky thing is uh, people say, well, they just destroyed a thousand acres. Well, not really. I mean, the forest comes back aggressively. Uh, that's the good news. Um, the pine will regenerate because a lot of the cones don't pop till after the fire goes through and even if they're burned up the seed's still valid and and the forest comes back but if you're not going to allow uh, frequent intervals of fire to go through that it's just going to do the same thing again and all that you know where you could be capturing all that wood product by thinning and um, getting the forest in a condition that it, uh, a pine forest like that, a yellow pine forest that you're thinning and burning, you can almost grow it in perpetuity. Uh, it's not a forest that you need to have a rotation or you know, you're taking trees out arbitrarily through the decades, but uh, you can keep your big old trees. And, uh, but, but you have to have fire. You have to have fire going through. Fire will control uh, the intensity of the regeneration because it'll it'll kill young trees, uh, and without that, you just get this dense, thick, uh, you know, landscape of trees and brush. Yeah, it's that's very similar to the uh, Shangham Ridge here in uh, New York State. It's it's very thick, and uh, you know they always say like, uh, oh, they don't want you to go in there after a fire. There was a forest fire uh, last year, or the year before, and. Um, after seeing that, it's like, man, this is a lot more dangerous before that fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Jeez. Well, it's unfortunate, um, but as the show says, keeping the pine lands means you better think about how you're going to keep it. Yeah. Now, I can tell you that some of these uh, these burns that I'm talking about are are, are good. You know, so my approach would be that if you manage the landscape, there could be areas where you could allow that to happen. And say, well, who cares if that thousand acres is burned up? Because the, the biodiversity and the, the ecology aspect of that is really, really important. So I'm not opposed to any of that. What I'm opposed to is having our management based on someone dropping a cigarette and arbitrarily burns up. 5,000 acres, you know, that was no plan, no, uh, we, we don't need that. We could, we certainly could have a more uh, organized uh, plan of action. Because sometimes these fires are burning up some of our best, oldest trees. And in, in the Pine Barrens, believe it or not, we're just beginning for the first time in hundreds of years see big old trees. Because they never let them grow, you know, big 
big short leaf pine and pitch pine that we ought not let get just arbitrarily burned up you know same with Atlantic white cedar uh, fire can go in a cedar swamp and burn out the uh, the turf and cedar will never grow there again you know so there's some real negative things but without forest planning in other words which you guys know that that is uh, a plan of action. Uh, we're just flying by the seat of our pants, hoping that it'll be okay. And it's not okay because look at Maui. Don't tell me there weren't people warning about if we don't take care of this brush around here, we're going to have a problem. And they were probably shot down. You know, well, you know, that's natural. We don't want... Uh, uh, so... Uh, it's it's tragedy. We're living in, in terms of natural resources. I think we're living in a tragic time. Um, we need to get our act together and get back to some basic conservation roots uh, of of taking care of the land. Do you think people really know what conservation means and that they no. can decipher it from preservation? Because I don't. No. In, in our neck of the woods, I don't. I don't think they do. No, they don't. They don't. And it's been sold. Preservation has been sold now as conservation successfully, and um, I don't think the forestry community has grasped how serious that really is. Certainly the forest industry has not. Uh, They just haven't, or they would have made the investments in education, like this film. I didn't get paid to do this, but... I took a lot of time and effort to help this lady uh, do it because I, I knew she wanted to do something special, which she did. She's not a forester, but she's certainly smart enough and bright enough to design a documentary that has a has a powerful message. And it's a simple message, but nonetheless, it it shows someone cutting a, a board with a sawmill. You know, it shows a farmer with his cramper. It shows me, and it's, it's like we're not demons that want to destroy everything you know, it's like um but we're fa- and and of course your show is part of that effort um you know of, of trying to get a few people elsewise i don't know what we're facing down the road i just think you mean tell me we're going to get all of our our forest products from other countries it, it just seems like that's where we're headed, you know. It's like, oh, okay, I don't get that. I mean, Americans are so spoiled <laughs> and wealthy, they just want to look at trees. Yeah. You know, uh, and there are a lot of trees, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not opposed to preservation. There are a lot of forests that I would chain myself to the trees if the state or feds were going to cut trees. Uh People can take me the wrong way and say, well, here, oh, the only green he sees is a dollar sign. Well, that's just not true. But there are so, you know, if we were allowed to just work on the forest that would benefit from help, we'd, we'd never get to it all. You know, so we have more product than we could ever use, but, um, and there's, there's, there's just plenty of room for, for uh, stands of trees to be left alone. Maybe yeah, not for yeah. 500 years, but for a long, long time, they could be left alone. And I'm not opposed to, there are a lot of forests that are doing quite fine, and they don't need a forester in there marking trees. And I see that happening, and, well, you know, it's forest health. No, leave it alone. It's, look, it's doing fine. 
And to me, part of the problem is it's easy for government especially to, you know, put a blue line around something and say we're going to preserve it, right? But it's so much harder to manage it. Like it was easy – like for example, you look at deer. It was easy to say to people you can't kill deer this year. But managing for deer or managing deer, that's tough. And that's what I'm saying. Conservation, so, which is, you know, to me, wise use, that's just so much more difficult. I'm not so sure the government's equipped to do that without markets well, the, and market well, forces. The, go the government is not equipped to do it without markets. The taxpayers could never pay for the work that needs to be done, even though they're paying for work to get done in some Look at the federal government spending billions yeah. of dollars that then uh, that's not going to work. It, it can't work. You can't take care of forests without somebody making money. I know that's offensive. I know people hate it when I say that. But it's just true. The cost of doing some of these, you could have uh, endangered species plant species, you want to restore their habitat. Well, that's great that the government gave you a $150,000 grant of taxpayer money to do it, but that's not going to make a difference to those plants on the landscape. It's not. That's why we're losing things, and it's not the developers any longer that are destroying them. It's right. plant and forest succession. Um, how we get back to our conservation land ethic is a subject for some universities to begin training young students on and saying, here's what you're going to learn. And when you go out to society, you preach this 24-7. The good news is good conservation. The results are overwhelmingly positive. And when the public sees that, they're okay with that. It's just that they don't get a chance to see much of it. But that's the good news. We have something to sell that people would buy if they knew about it. Yeah. But it's tough. they don't. Yeah. And the government's not going to do the things, you know, employees there are just, they're, they're trying to do something, but they're not going to put their uh, career on the line to fight for something and, and face this, you know, this incredible environmental opposition. You know, the environmentalists in, in the United States are extremely powerful. And they, they, you know, cutting a tree typically is pretty ugly. And they made a lot of progress showing a lot of photographs. <laughs> like, look at what he did to this land. This, well, you know, why don't you take a photo in five years? Like, well, we're not going to do that. So we're all struggling with this, I, except for areas, there's areas in the southeast that they're growing pine plantations and they're left alone. There's areas in the Pacific Northwest where they're growing Douglas fir plantations and they're kind of left alone. And those industries are surviving and doing well. And and um, they're not confronted like consultants like you and I are with the day-to-day -day landowner who wants to take care of his land but is handed a fistful of regulations and he just says i don't want to deal with this you know yeah absolutely well i i think um you know the start is is trying to decipher people maybe conservation from preservation and the and you know yeah. that, that is man that is just so misunderstood yeah it is it's like it's really the root of the problem 
um, it, it, I don't know what else, you know. If you look at our last hundred years, you can see how it progressed. And I'd say from the 70s on, the decline happened. You know, it, it really did just a steady, uh, I mean, in my experience from what we were doing in the 70s till now, it's like uh, some of that was brought on by ourselves, you know, but nonetheless, there was no concerted effort to say, look, we, we have to we have to go beyond managing the land we have to help uh human beings understand how important it is to them yeah and the good news is i said before the public is not stupid i've had a lot of experience with this and when they see and understand they're like yeah i'm not you know i'm not opposed to that i would but we just don't get much of that you know the opportunity to uh, we don't yeah hey bob thank you for coming on we're actually out of time and uh we appreciate your time immensely yeah good time we'll do it again sometime all right bob take care okay see ya all right if you just missed the show that was uh bob williams new jersey forester and the show was on keeping the pine lands could be a similar story for uh catskill mountains have a good night good night his eyes were red his hopes were dead and the wine was running low and the old man came Sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway, and the bottle was his friend. And the old man stumbled in from the forest. Up a dark and dingy staircase, the old man made his way. Cold around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear so dear but loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year when the wildflowers did bloom in the forest she touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at the games in an old Garden town where the river runs down from the forest with a mighty roar, the big jet soars. Delia IOX is supported by you and the following underwriters.
Rockland Cider Works, upstate in Gilboa, an agritourism cidery with vacation rentals on a sprawling former dairy farm. Gluten-free hard cider made from 100% New York State apples, New York State produced beer, wine, and spirits, and live music this Friday and Saturday and every Friday and Saturday through October. Rockland Cider Works, upstate on Stryker Road in Gilboa. Details at rocklandciderworks.com. Chappie's Good Food on Main Street in Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607-326-7020 or chappiesgoodfood.com. The Catskill Revitalization Corporation.